Well, good morning, church. It's really good to be with you guys. Thank you, Bishop Aaron. Well, as most of you know, as Pastor Aaron just said, we're, we've been trekking our way through uh, the Gospel of Mark, which is, of course, one of the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life and his death, and even better, his resurrection, which we've been celebrating here recently. And today, we get to kind of unofficially finish up our study in Mark. Uh, Pastor Aaron will be back next week to tie up some odds and ends, but kind of unofficially, we'll finish up Mark today because we'll be digging into the final half of the final chapter of Mark together. But before we do that, I'm going to read that text from Mark, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get going. So uh, this is from Mark chapter 16, verses 12 through 20. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned." And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Sound City, let's pray together. God, I thank you for gathering us together today as a church family. Thank you again, coming off Easter, for the costly grace that you've lavished upon us through the death of your son, Jesus. And even more so, we thank you, God, for the good news that the grave could not hold him. And that because of his resurrection, we have this sure hope of eternity with you. Protect me and lead me as I share your truth here today. And help these friends to hear more of you and less of me in the message. Teach us now, God, myself included exactly what you want us to learn from the end of Mark's gospel where we're studying today. And change us with your truth today, we pray. And we pray all these things through your Son and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, as you'd rightly expect, we'll be spending some time today uh, talking about what God wants to teach us from this bit of Mark, uh, which again is the very end of Mark, the the final half of the final chapter of Mark. But with this particular bit, as Pastor Aaron mentioned, we are going to have to unpack God's Word a little differently than we usually do. Because as some of you probably know, this particular passage, and again, as Pastor Aaron said, is it's It's really kind of mired in controversy. It's considered by textual scholars to be one of the most problematic sections in all of Scripture. Thank you again, Pastor Aaron. Um, And so what that means for us, though, is that we just need to do a little bit of spade work before we we get any further into the the actual verses. And we need to do that in an area uh, of biblical study called text criticism, which simply put is really just this process that uses various methods to study the biblical manuscripts that Bible translators use to form our modern translations of Scripture, like the ESV that many of you are holding or the NASB or other modern translations. Now, that can be scary stuff for some. 
But for certain strange people, like me, who geek out a little bit on the thought of ancient manuscripts and archaeological digs and other Raiders of the Lost Ark type stuff, uh, this is a little bit exciting. As, we were, uh, as the elders and I were talking uh, about today's sermon earlier in the week, Pastor Aaron asked me, as I was telling him kind of where we're going to be going with it, uh, he asked me if I wanted to put a little piece of tape on, in between my glasses. <laughs> And so I think, I'm pretty sure, you guys can correct me if you think it's otherwise, but I think he was probably trying to call me a little bit of a, a nerd. And so, of course, I very lovingly responded to him, and I said, well, at least I don't have a separate room in my house for Batman memorabilia. Um, so, oh, he'll deny it, but it's, it's real. Anyways, the point is that for some of us, this stuff is really interesting, and uh, for others of us, it can be a little disconcerting, a little scary, but it doesn't need to be scary. And uh, we'll show you why as we unpack all this together. Let me start by um, sharing a statement with you from the draft version of the Sound City Bible Church Statement of Faith. And this is our statement on inerrancy and the authority of Scripture, and this is what it says. The Bible is God's Word, every word of it completely trustworthy and true. The scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, are the inspired word of God and without error in the original writings or autographs, and are the complete revelation of his will for the salvation of mankind, and as the final authority for all Christian faith and life. Now, what I want us to focus on here is those words, original writings, or what sometimes is called the original autographs. What do we mean when we say autographs? Well, to answer that, we need to back up a little further and talk about just the nature of our modern Bible a little bit, how we got it in the form that we have it today. Simply put, the original autographs, what we mean when we say that is the original sheets of papyrus that the biblical authors themselves used to pen the original letters and writings that would eventually be brought together into a collection that we would call the Canon of Scripture or the Holy Bible. For some of us, this begs the question, what is uh, papyrus? And what papyrus is, is a, it's a paper of sorts. Yeah, you've got an example of it up there on the screen. And what they would do in this early, to make this early form of paper is they would take the papyrus plant and they would uh, take the stems and they would cut it into strips and then they would press it flat and then they would weave it together a bit. And once it dried, then it was used for paper. You can see how it's kind of woven together and uh, how it's pressed flat like that. Long sections of this papyrus paper, then, are what was used by the original human authors to write down the very words of God. Then these would be rolled into scrolls and used in churches for reading the scriptures to the congregations of the early church. Now, here's a close-up, the next slide, of uh, an actual papyrus fragment with actual Greek text. So this is an early manuscript. Uh, this one has parts of the book of Romans on it and parts of the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians as well, so this is a Pauline fragment. You can still see the papyrus, the weaving together, and, and, and again, just how it was pressed flat, just like the, the piece we saw without writing on it. Now, we'll talk more about manuscripts like this as we move forward and, and what the significance of that is, but part of the issue and question for us as we look at these verses in Mark 16, verses 12 through 20, or really 9 through 20, uh, is wrapped up in this question of how it is that we got from the original autograph of the book of Mark from the, it's those original papyrus scrolls handwritten by John Mark to the translated copy of Mark's gospel that we have in our present-day ESV or other modern translation. And so we've got two questions really to dig into. First, how did we get from here to there? How do we get from the original autograph to what we have today? And then second, what does that have to do with Mark 16, 12 through 20, and how we should deal with that and apply it to our lives? 
So first, how do we get from the original penned manuscript of Mark to what we have in our Bibles today? Well, the, the story for how we've gotten most of our New Testament books is somewhat similar. In the years following the resurrection, which our best understanding of that date would be A.D. 30, um, the apostles, the original disciples of Jesus, and then those in service to them as well, they would go around to the churches preaching and teaching and eventually appointing elders in those churches to do, to do the same thing, to preach and teach the truth about Jesus and to plant new churches. Then over and over again, over the couple decades that followed Jesus' ascension, Sometimes a question would arise or a matter would come up related to a particular teaching of Jesus that would create the need to write down those teachings, which up to that point had really just been more or less oral tradition. Also, as the years went on, many who had been eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus' life, including the original disciples themselves, they started to die which also greatly then encouraged the, this emphasis that was placed on getting the eyewitness accounts of Jesus written down so that they could be passed down with the same level of accuracy as they had been. Another common cause for writing down the oral traditions concerning Jesus in the early church was when a religious teacher would come through town and would introduce a heresy of some kind, a false teaching contrary to what Jesus had taught, and that would lead to a writing down of the actual truth uh, so that we could have the actual truth about that event or that doctrine that was being called in question uh, by the false teacher. The papyrus letters and documents then would be copied and they'd be shared throughout the churches of the known world so that these heresies could be successfully refuted and the truth about Jesus kept pure for the future generations. It's really cool. We even see kind of this uh, copying and then distributing to other churches. We see examples of that all throughout the scriptures. So we'll look at Colossians 4.16 as one example. So here we have Paul saying this, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So here we've got the letter of Colossians being read in a local church, and the, the writer of that letter, the Apostle Paul, telling the church, hey, when you're done with that letter, I want you to give it to the church in Laodicea and then get from them the letter that I sent to them, which, by the way, we think was probably the letter of Ephesians. And so as for the book of Mark itself, it falls right in line with kind of this outline that we've just established for how the books of the New Testament uh, came to be written down. This is really cool. For the book of Mark itself, uh, our best understanding of, why, of how it came to be written down comes to us from uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, who wrote a church history book way back in the 4th century. So we're talking like mid-300s here. And this is what he said in his church history text about the writing down, of the first writing of the, of the book of Mark, the original autographs. I think it'll be on your screens. In the same reign of Claudius, who died in AD 54... The providence of the universe guided to Rome the great and mighty Peter, preaching the gospel. But the hearers of Peter were not satisfied with a single hearing, but with every kind of exhortation besought Mark, seeing that he was Peter's follower, to leave them a written statement of the teaching given them verbally. Nor did they cease until they had persuaded him, and so became the cause of the scripture called the gospel of Mark. And that's from Eusebius' ecclesiastical history text. Isn't it amazing to get a glimpse back into how our scriptures came into being? But regardless of how we got Mark, once it was written, the printing press of Jesus' day kind of takes over. And the printing press of Jesus' day was not a printing press at all. It was scribes who were making written copies, handwritten copy after handwritten copy after handwritten copy, until this book was well distributed then and shared with all the churches. This is how most of the New Testament books got written down and copied and circulated to the churches. 
And so to make a long story really short, our modern translations of the Bible are coming from these copies of copies that these scribes made that were based on the original autographs. Does that make sense? You tracking with me still? All right, I know it's technical. Hold on. Uh, so going back to our statement of faith then, when we say the scriptures are the inspired word of God and without error in the original writings or autographs, what we're acknowledging is this, that while we believe the originally penned manuscripts or autographs to be absolutely perfect, the inspired word of God, we're also confessing that the copies and copies of copies that our modern Bible is based on do have some differences between them. And they even have some occasional scribal errors in them as well. Now hold on, if that's scary to someone, don't let that scare you too much. It's, it's not really as scary as it sounds because there's some facts we should know about that that will help take us off the ledge. Uh, first, we need to know that the biblical manuscripts, the, if you take them all together and we, and we measure them against each other, they are 99%, fully 99% or more in agreement with one another. Okay? Second, the vast majority of the minor differences found between one manuscript or another are easily recognizable to, tr to uh, Bible translators and to scholars as errors in punctuation or word endings or word order, or other minor grammatical mistakes. Third, not a single major theological or biblical truth is thrown into doubt by any of these manuscript differences or scribal errors, not a single one. And fourth, the manuscript evidence that modern translation teams have at their disposal today to help them work through these differences and, and small errors is simply overwhelming, but in a good way. The truth is that we've got over 25,000 New Testament manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts with which to go about the work of creating a modern translation of the Bible. Over 25,000. Some of the earliest manuscripts are dating back to around the year 100. Uh, one of them, 117 AD, one of the very earliest ones, which was within a generation, a single human lifespan of when those originally penned manuscripts would have been written. And the number and the quality of the manuscripts that we have is growing year by year as archaeologists find more and more of them. There's even a recent manuscript, as I was researching for today, that I, that I found that uh, the results aren't all in yet, and so they've not published it. There's some legal matters about who owns what, and so they're, they're pretty tight-lipped about all the details. But what has leaked out so far is it's a fragment of Mark that they found, and they think it's probably from before 90 A.D., so we think Mark wrote sometime in the 40s. This is probably in the 80s, this, this fragment that they think that we've found. I mean, this is just within a stone's throw of when that originally man, original autograph would have been penned. What's it all mean? Well, it, it means that with the tens of thousands of manuscripts that we have now and the early age of so many of those documents, we can be very, 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 very sure that the Bible that we have today is faithful to the original autographs. One scholar, speaking even before some of the more recent discoveries have been found, said it this way, the vast array of manuscripts has enabled textual scholars to accurately reconstruct the original text with more than 99% accuracy. 99.9, I'm sorry, percent accuracy. Isn't it amazing the way God has preserved his word for us over such a long period of time? So that's a little of the story of how we got our New Testament books and how much confidence we should have in the Bible that we have in front of us today. But what's it all got to do with Mark 16, 12 through 20? Well, I think with all that as a backdrop, we're finally in a place now where we can begin to address that question. 
So when you look at your Bible, if it's an ESV or almost any major uh, modern translation other than the King James or the New King James, which is a whole other conversation, you can ask me later. Um, but m- what most of what you'll see when you look in a modern translation at, at Mark 16, 9 through 20, is some kind of indicator or mechanism that tells us that this long ending of Mark is actually disputed. And what this means to us is that many scholars seriously doubt whether this ending of Mark was actually part of the original autograph of Mark penned by his hand personally in the 40s AD. And so up here on the screens, you'll see what's in the ESV uh, this, as this indicator to let us know. Which it, and it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And then it puts uh, verses 9 through 20 in big double brackets to make sure that we know something's different uh, about these verses. And then it gives us a footnote that explains in more detail as well. I'll read that footnote for us too. The footnote says this, Some manuscripts end the book with Mark 16, 8. Others include verses 9 through 20, immediately after verse 8. At least one manuscript inserts additional material after verse 14, and some manuscripts include after verse 8 the following language. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with them all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. These manuscripts, where that's included, then continue with verses 9 through 20. So the footnote gives us all sorts of information about the potential problems with our, or with our text here at the end of Mark and shows us that there were actually many, many, many different ways that the manuscript evidence show the ending of Mark in the copies of copies of the manuscripts. And again, these are the copies that help modern scholars put together our modern translations. And then it shares with us, the footnote, uh, a common manuscript variation, which is sometimes called the shorter ending of Mark. And if you read that up next to verse 8, it's really, really attractive to us for lots of reasons, because verse 8 can seem like a rather abrupt ending to uh, the book of Mark, and this shorter ending would really just clean that up nicely for us if it was part of the original. And then at the end of the footnote, we see uh, it continues by saying that um, some of the manuscripts that include the shorter ending sometimes but not always also include uh, the longer ending. Again, what's it all got to do with how we deal with Mark 16? Well, we could quite literally, based on all the research I was doing this week, we could stay here probably pretty much literally around the clock for days uh, without exhausting all the research that's been done on this text and on the various uh, ways to look at the textual problems. But instead of doing that, I thought uh, you might not want to stay here that long. So I thought we'd summarize our options as best we could based on that research and walk through those options together. So option one for how we handle all this. First, we could uh, choose to accept the addition of the shorter ending of Mark as being genuine scripture. This is the ending we read in the footnote, and in favor of this option would be that a great many of the later manuscripts, so not the the oldest ones, but the, the later manuscripts that we've found, they include the addition of the shorter ending of Mark. So we've got a lot of manuscript evidence that shows that this was uh, there. However, while it seems like a nice clean ending to Mark, there's lots of good reasons that this, most of the manuscript scholars believe this ending was not actually written by Mark himself. And if that's true, then we should not understand this to be the original ending of Mark, and we should not understand it to be the inspired word of God. 
So why would someone add this on? The most likely explanation of the shorter ending being added to the manuscripts, the later manuscripts, is that a scribe was just trying to be dutiful, and he added these verses to try and smooth out what, again, seemed like a, a really rather abrupt ending to the Gospel of Mark. And he probably would do this based on other stories of the Gospels that he was aware of that were circulating in the churches. So that's option one. It doesn't appear that that's going to be a good option for us. Let's see what else we've got. Option two is accepting the addition of the longer ending of Mark as genuine scripture. So as with the shorter ending, there's lots and lots of manuscripts that include verses 9 through 20, the longer ending of Mark in them, sometimes including the shorter ending as well, sometimes not. However, just like with the shorter ending, for lots of good scholarly reasons, there's very few of these scholars that believe that 9 through 20 were written at Mark's hand, and so Again, we should not understand this to be the original ending of Mark and should not understand it to be the inspired word of God. Just as with the addition of the shorter ending, uh, as far as why this would have been added to the manuscripts, similar reasoning. A scribe trying to, trying to do something good, trying to, to add on what he thought may have been the ending or might be a more suitable ending, would have added this based on other gospel accounts that he was familiar with. So, if neither the short ending nor the longer ending found in the manuscripts uh, evidence are to be considered the true word of God, then what does that leave us with? It leaves us with option three, which is accepting only up through verse eight of chapter 16 as being the inspired words of Mark's original autograph. Now, strongly in favor of this option is the fact that the earliest manuscripts we have, which are often going to be the most trustworthy and best resources we have, they end the book of Mark at verse eight but there are conflicting scholarly opinions as to why they end at verse 8, and those are worth mentioning for a second. Some scholars look at the, the grammatical structure of verse 8, and, and they look at other clues in the text, and they believe that there must have been some additional verses that originally follow that in the original autograph. And the conclusion these scholars are left with then, since we don't have that today, is that the original verses, the original ending of Mark, must have been lost. However, there's just as many uh, modern scholars and even some of the early church fathers that look at verse 8 and what they see there is a perfect ending to the Gospel of Mark. They see an ending that seems very much in the character of Mark, who throughout the first 15 chapters of his Gospel recorded a very fast-moving, less detailed account of Jesus' life, sometimes leaving folks wanting a little bit more detail than what he provides. They see a gospel writer who regularly emphasized the astonishment of others in response to the acts of a divine Jesus, which is what we see over and over again in Mark. We see it in Mark 4.41, 5.15, 5.33, 6.50, and it's just what we see here in Mark 16, verse 8. So if Mark's gospel did end with verse 8, then it would end with these words, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. While we can't be sure, perhaps that's exactly how Mark would have meant his gospel to end. By witnessing to the trembling and the awe of those having just witnessed in Jesus' resurrection the most important event in all of history. We can be absolutely sure of this, though. If the Bible is the inspired word of God, breathed out by him as men were carried along by the Spirit to produce the writings that they produced, which is what the scriptures say about themselves in 2 Timothy and in 2 Peter, then we can be assured that we have all of his word that he's intended us to have, even if, if there was an ending that we've lost somewhere along the way. Okay, 
So then, what we've said is verses 9 through 20 are not to be considered on par with the rest of Scripture. They're not to be considered a genuine part of the Holy Scriptures. If that's true, then why are we talking about them? What would they have to teach us? Well, surprisingly, maybe quite a bit. If we believe as we should that all truth is God's truth, regardless of where we find it, then these verses might have quite a bit to offer us. But what we have to do here with these verses, then, is what we should be doing with any truth claim that isn't coming directly from the Scriptures, and that's to test it, right? We need to test it against the other Scriptures. The Bible itself is the measuring stick that we must measure every other truth claim against. That's good for us to remember. The Bible itself is the measuring stick that we must measure every other truth claim against. If a truth claim of any kind doesn't align with the Bible, then as a Christian, we should um, deny that claim, right? If a truth claim does align to what the Bible says, then we should affirm that as true and then seek to apply it to our lives. Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay, so finally now, with all that in mind, let's see what these verses might actually have to teach us today. Now, because of time and because Pastor Aaron dealt with verses 9 through 11, even though that's a, a part of this section, uh, he dealt with that last week a little bit. We're going to leave those verses alone for the most part, and we're going to start with verses 12 and 13, uh, which read like this. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Now, what we see here is really pretty similar to what we see in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24, verses 13 and following. And so uh, the only real biblical challenge we see here in uh, Mark is in verse 12, which speaks of Jesus appearing in another form. And that could seem to be teaching something that's different than what the rest of the Bible teaches about his resurrection, that it was bodily, that it was physical. But when we look at the Luke passage, it actually kind of explains that away pretty well. In verse 16, where it talks about how their eyes at first were kept from recognizing Jesus, which is probably where uh, the, long ending, the writer of the long ending of Mark actually got this idea anyway, uh, when he says in verse 12 that Jesus appeared in another form. So then because these verses in Mark, these uh, 12 and 13, actually align with another gospel account, which is actually considered scripture, then we can gladly accept what we see here in Mark 12 and 13 is good and true for us. And what do we see in those, both the Mark and the Luke version? What we see is a post-resurrection Jesus showing up bodily, in the flesh, and appearing to more and more witnesses. So what should that impress upon us? It should impress upon us precisely what these events impressed upon the growing number of witnesses, namely that Jesus had truly risen from the dead, that he is truly the promised Messiah and the prophesied Messiah, that he truly deserves our worship and that we rightly call him Lord, Savior, and King. As we move on to verse 14, then we read this. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. In Mark 16, 14, then we see Jesus letting down his disguise, as it were, and making himself known to his disciples and then rebuking them for their continued doubts and struggling to believe that he had truly risen from death. We see a parallel for these verses in Mark and the other Gospels as well, again, particularly in Luke 24. And so again, we can safely affirm what verse 14 is saying as a good and true word for us. 
And if we can accept it as a good and true word for us, then again, we should be asking what the application is for us. And I want to draw out a couple different applications. First of all, for those of us who are Christians, I think what this passage begs from us is to seriously ask ourselves this question. If Jesus appeared to me today, like he does here in verse 14 to the disciples, in what ways would he be rightly rebuking me for my unbelief and my hardness of heart? If Jesus appeared to me today, in what ways would he be rightly rebuking me for my unbelief and my own hardness of heart? God reminds me all the time. I don't know about you guys. He reminds me all the time, both in ministry settings and in my own walk with him, of this reality that anytime I know that the Bible says one thing and I do another, not only am I sinning against God, but I'm saying to him, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. So by way of application for us, let me ask you, Christians, where are you with your words, with your lives, saying to God, I just don't believe you? Where are you with your lives saying to God, I don't believe you? What's that area of hard-heartedness that the Spirit is pointing out to you right now as I'm speaking these words? I think that God has some of us here today to hear from him right now about where we've hardened our hearts against him. And where we need to turn, where we need to repent, to believe, to follow. So that's for the Christians here today, but what about anyone who's in here and is not a Christian? Well, I actually think there's a lot of application for you here as well. Uh, But before we get to that, let me be really clear about what I mean when I say non-Christian. When I say non-Christian, I'm talking about at least two groups of people here. I'm talking about those who are very clear about where they stand with Jesus. They'd say, yep, not one of you. Don't believe in this Jesus at all. That's the first group. But there's another group of non-Christians who maybe they would say, yeah, I believe Jesus existed. They might even say, yeah, I believe the resurrection happened. But who have never said, Jesus, you died in my place for my sins, and I trust you as my Savior who have never said, Jesus, I repent and I want to give you the rest of my life to learn how to submit to you as Lord. Do you see the difference? The Bible says in the book of James that even the demons believe the facts about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And simply believing these things are real or true, mental assent to these ideas does not make you a Christian any more than it makes the demons Christians. Do you know that? So this second category of non-Christians that I'm talking about, this was very much the story of my wife. Stephanie would tell you that all her young life, she thought she was a Christian. She'd grown up going to Christian schools. She'd read all the Bible stories, knew all the Bible stories, still knows a lot of the Old Testament stories far better than me. Um, She knew all the Sunday school songs, and she'd have told you that Jesus is real and that the Bible was true. She'd also tell you now that at that time back then, she's very sure that she did not have a relationship with Jesus and that nothing in her life had changed because of her intellectual assent to the facts about Jesus. She'd tell you a story about getting drugged to church one Sunday by some guy when she was 24 years old and how the pastor asked the congregation to bow their heads and asked if anyone in the room wanted to acknowledge themselves as a sinner and give their lives to Jesus. 
And if so, he told them that they were to silently confess that in prayer to God right then. Steph would tell you that with the smallest bit of faith, she thought to herself, I've, I've never really confessed those things before. And so she prayed that silently to God in that moment. She'd tell you that when she left church that day, she left changed forever. She'd tell you that all her life she'd thought she'd been a Christian, but that up to that point she had only had the faith of demons. She'd tell you that understanding the difference between intellectual assent to facts and faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior was a matter of life and death for her. And it is for us too. It is for each of us too. So now that we know who we're talking about when we say non-Christian, let's go back to verse 14. And let's see what God might have for those of us in the room who are not Christians. What would he have for you to see in this verse? In reality, I think the application question for you is almost the same as the one that we posed a minute ago for the Christ followers in the room. And it's this, non-Christians, what has your own hardness of heart led you to believe about Jesus? What's your own hardness of heart led you to believe about Jesus? And more importantly, what are you prepared to do about it? Do you really find it hard to believe that you're a sinner and that your sin has separated you from God? Or is that just your hard-heartedness? Do you really find it hard to believe that you need a Savior and that the one that created you and the whole universe might not have a better plan for your life than you do? Or is that just your own hard-heartedness? What's God telling you to do? Right now as we're talking, what's he telling you to do? How's he telling you to respond? Might I offer that Jesus is telling you exactly what he told his first disciples? To repent of your hard-heartedness toward me. Believe that I died in your place and for your sins and that I rose from the dead so that you could have life with me forever, starting now. Let me do this. Not something we usually do, but let me do what this pastor back in Dallas did for my wife 20 years ago. Let me ask you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads with me, and we're going to pray like that pastor did, and we're going to see if God might choose to save some non-Christians here in the room today. Let's pray. Lord God, you sent Jesus to die in our place to pay the debt owed for our sins so that all of those who would give their lives to you and um, trust in you and trust in Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross to save them so that they could be redeemed, so that they could be made new, so that they could be given your Holy Spirit to guide them for the rest of their days. We pray, God, that if there's anyone in here who's never confessed these truths to you and meant it, that they would do so right now, that they would pray these words silently to you as I say them, that they'd say to you, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that my sin condemns me to death and separates me from you. That they'd say, Jesus, I need a Savior to save me from the death that I deserve because of my sin. Jesus, I confess what the Bible says about you is true, that you died in my place and for my sins to bring me back into right relationship with you. So I trust you now as my Savior, and I give my life to following you as my Lord. Amen. Well, if anyone in the room prayed that for the first time today and meant it, well, you're a Christian now. And you'll walk out of here totally changed. Not perfected, 
but changed. And with the Holy Spirit now indwelling you and helping you to lead, uh, helping lead you in this lifetime process of being a disciple, of growing you from one degree to another as a follower of Jesus. If that happened to anyone in here today, will you please not leave without talking to one of us and letting us know about that so we can follow up with you and so we can celebrate that with you? Okay, let's get back to our text. Verses 15 and 16 now. Verse 15 starts with this, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Well, let's do what we were doing before. Let's deal first with the textual problem. So do these verses from the long ending of Mark, which we said we're not going to be considering uh, genuine scripture, do they align with what the other gospels say is true? And this one's an easy one. Here we'd have to say uh, just a resounding yes. What we've got here is the Great Commission to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel, the good news about Jesus to all the nations, to the ends of the earth, to every corner of God's creation. And we see these same things really clearly in Matthew 28 and in Luke 24. And so the big application for us then in these verses is to reflect on the very mission of God and the mission that he's established for his church to proclaim Jesus so that disciples might be made all for his glory and our good. Let me ask you this, though. Um, how often is it that you consider whether or not your, your words, your deeds, your thoughts, your motives on a daily basis reflect that you're on the mission of God? Is that part of a regular rhythm that you have in, in prayer and in Bible study and as you talk to God? Is that reflection on are you on his mission? Are you living according to his purposes for your life? Is that part of your regular rhythm with God? Or are you more likely to be spending your time pursuing your own shadow mission, if you're honest? It might be something good for us to think about. It might be something good for us to think about. Next, in verses 17 and 18, 18 then, it says this, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Again, let's deal with the textual question first. The writer of the long ending of Mark is suggesting to us here that these are the very words of Jesus himself. But since we're not considering these verses genuine scripture, we need to first see if we can find a parallel elsewhere in scripture like we've been doing. We do find the promise that the disciples of Jesus will do great and even miraculous things in his name. We find that in several places in the scriptures. We'll look at one here in John 14, verse 12, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Yeah. So we do have a precedent for what's being said here in verse 17 and 18, but let's see what else we can observe about these verses. We also seem to have precedent for this idea that the disciples might uh, cast out demons at times. We see this happen with the Apostle Paul in Acts 16, 18, for example. We have some marginal precedent for this bit in verse 18 about serpents and scorpions in Luke 10, verse 19, where the disciples of Jesus are given authority over serpents and scorpions. But then if we look at the extra-biblical literature, uh, writings outside of the scriptures from around the same time, we also find out that this was a bit of a Jewish expression in Jesus' day. 
that that language, when, when it was used together, serpents and scorpions, that it had more of a general meaning of just having authority over the power of the enemy. And that fits pretty well with Luke 10, 19 as well. So it seems like our verses in 17 and 18 here might be going a little beyond what the rest of Scripture does. In Acts 28, 3 through 6, we see the Apostle Paul is surprisingly unaffected by a snake bite on his hand. So there's a little bit of precedent for, uh, for that here as well. And those who witnessed Paul being bitten uh, were expecting him to have been really injured by this. And they were really surprised when he wasn't. And so maybe it was a, a poisonous snake that we're talking about here. But again, um, that text doesn't seem to go as far as this one does here in verse 18. As far as this drinking poison piece, we don't really have good biblical precedent for this uh, anywhere in, in the scriptures, but there are some extra biblical writings about this uh, that suggest that there were stories of Jesus' disciples doing such things, but just not from scripture. Finally then, as for healing of the sick, we see Paul regain his sight. We see him healed. And then somewhat relatedly, we see the elders of the churches called to anoint the sick with oil in the name of the Lord. So we do have some biblical precedent, but all in all, what should we think of these verses? Well, uh, since they're not genuine scripture and since the claims of many of them seem to go further than the rest of scripture, it seems that we would do better to look at the related notions uh, that are expressed in the genuine scriptures rather than to expect all these things that we find in 17 and 18 to be the, the signs that accompany our 21st century experience as disciples of Jesus. It seems that godly wisdom would have us rest far more in the general passages like John 14, 12 that we looked at a minute ago, and like Acts 1, 8, which assures us in Jesus' own words that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us, and we will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As for the kind of power and gifting that we'll each receive as these accompanying signs, rather than relying on Mark 16 for determining this, I'd offer that it's probably far better for us to just trust God to use us as he wills and to pray that we would each be found faithful in accomplishing all that he calls us to in his name. Okay, let's move on to our final set of verses here in verses 19 and 20. And what we find here is really just the Great Commission being applied and lived out by the disciples in some pretty bold and, and dynamic ways. We see also the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God and uh, all of these things are things that we can find pretty readily in the uh, other gospel accounts, and so we have no reason at all to reject these verses since they align so perfectly with what the genuine scriptures say. From an application perspective here uh, in these final verses, what strikes me the most is this reminder in verse 20 that the Lord always remains at work with us. When I read that verse, I'm reminded of the passage in Matthew. Maybe that's where your mind goes to from which uh, this is probably actually the, the words that uh, the, the writer of the long ending of Mark, it's probably where he drew his language for this passage. And it's from Matthew 28, verse 20, where it says this, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always to the end of the age. What a great comfort to those of us who have been saved by his blood, called to his mission, and who uh, await his return which is what we'll actually be talking about next week when Pastor Aaron picks things up for us. Well, we've covered a ton of ground, and um, I think what would be good for us now is just to take some time to respond to what God's been teaching us. And so as we often do, we'll do that in several different ways. First, we'll respond through giving. So if our financial stewards want to come, 
That'd be great. And when we give here, just as a reminder to you, we do so with a joyful heart because we're excited about the work that God's doing in and through us and, and through Sound City. And so we steward our finances that God has given us in that direction. But if you're our guest, please know while you're welcome to give, there's no expectation or obligation that you do so. Second, let me offer up some questions drawn out of the message for our consideration in community group and in personal reflection. I'll read those for us now. Discuss with your group how confident you are or not that the Bible that we have is essentially the same as the original autographs and share any specific questions you have with your group. Number two, where are you with your life saying to God, I don't believe you, I don't believe you? Number three, if Jesus appeared to you today, in what ways would he be rightly rebuking you for unbelief and hardness of heart? Be brave. Share your answers on that with your group. When you think about your daily life, number four, would you say in general that your words and thoughts and deeds are bent towards pursuing God's mission or more towards a shadow mission of your own? Again, be brave. Share that with your group. And then number five, um, What's the most impactful thing you've learned from our study of Mark 16 today, and how is God asking you to live it out? Another way we're going to respond is through communion. We're all Christians, including uh, maybe some that just trusted Christ today as Savior and Lord for salvation. We're all Christians are welcome to come to the table in remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us. We'll also respond through confession and prayer. And so if there's any of you that uh, would like to uh, talk to someone, to pray with someone, uh, we're going to have some folks down here to my left. And so you're welcome to come down front for that once we stand together and respond in song and in praise to Jesus. So why don't we do that? Let's stand together now, and I'll pray, and then we'll respond. God, thank you for your perfect word the Bible, preserved for us in such amazing ways so that we have today exactly the words that you wanted us to have, exactly the words you wanted to use to reveal yourself to us, to save us and to guide us. Pray that you'd soften our hearts, Lord God. We believe, yet help our unbelief. We thank you that you have given us spiritual gifts and real power to do amazing things in your name, and we pray that we'd be found faithful in following Jesus and in living out your mission and purposes, God, in our every word, our every thought, our every deed, our every motive. We love you, God, and we pray all these things through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.